welcome back to the Lowdown Society podcast. I'm your host, Victor Broden. I appreciate you guys being back for a new episode. It's been a few months since our last one. I'm very excited about today's episode. It features a veteran of the Nashville studio scene, Mr. Steve Mackey. Steve is one of those guys that all the rest of us bass players that have been based in Nashville basically agree that we want to be like when we grow up. His soulfulness and his taste and his tone is just always top-notch. Plus, he's the nicest guy you'll ever meet, who you'll hear is extremely passionate about all things bass and music. I had just an absolutely fantastic time chatting with Steve, and uh, today's podcast is a little bit longer than a few of the other ones, and uh, I hope you guys find that to be a good thing. We'll get the chance to hear Steve talk about him working with the Wallflowers, Dolly Parton, Garth Brooks, and just a host of other interesting stories and experiences that he's had over the years. So without further ado, please welcome Mr. Steve Mackey. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, man. But yeah, we were talking right before I turned this thing on about how I harassed some of my previous bass hang victims about geographically where they grew up and how me, how I as a European obsess over you guys that get to grow up in the American South. For us, lovers of funk, R&B, soul, classic rock, Christians have Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And, and us music fans, we have Memphis and St. Louis and, and, yeah, that's and, Mecca. and Nashville and, and New Orleans. And they're all down here. So you're one of many great bass players from Virginia, right? Well, yeah, from West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. It's right on the Virginia border. And it's a pretty interesting place because it's south of D.C., maybe four hours. Mm-hmm. But it's right in the mountains, right in the Appalachian Mountains. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really, other than what was on the radio, I just grew up hearing bluegrass, really. I wasn't in bands. I didn't have that kind of thing. It was always very musical, and I was always around music. But, but um, it wasn't an urban environment at all. Yeah. But it was a nice mix of people. There were country people that would play old, traditional bluegrass songs. And then you would have these transplants that would come down from D.C. You know, you know so you would hear, you could hear a jazz quartet somewhere from some cats that could really play because there was a big resort hotel 10 miles down the road. So that has to have been a big resource for you if you live in a rural area to actually have a place that would pay national acts coming through yeah 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 it was great and if we wanted to you know we could drive a couple hours and see whatever concerts you know we wanted whatever concerts were coming through whatever acts were on the road that's amazing and then you told me that your actual first sort of the way you got funk r&b was up sort of slightly northeast of where you grew up yeah i didn't um i just kind of played what what was available to me when I lived there. I played in school, played in high school, and then I moved to the Northeast to go to school, to go to Berkeley, mm-hmm. and b- became friends with guys my age who were like from mostly New York guys and bought from Baltimore and Atlanta, bought, sorry, Baltimore and um, uh, the mid-Atlantic region like around mm-hmm. D.C., mm-hmm. and where the funk is super aggressive and just raw and hard. And so that was my first introduction to that kind of funk. So my foundation is not so much the 
Southern thing in the beginning, you know, like the yeah. Muscle Shoals thing. Yeah. Although it's there. Yeah. And it was a giant influence when I got introduced to it later. For me, like studying like the Ohio players and like, yeah, absolutely. You know that that stuff is definitely different than the Memphis thing. It's straight to the point, not necessarily that involved, but it's a little angrier for sure. Yes, definitely. It was such a good time for music then. Um, and, the, and, we, and we had those records. Like I had a neighbor that had a record store that went bankrupt, and he gave my brother and I crates of records. And I still have Otis Redding, To Tell the Truth, where we've got, where we're drawing crayons, you know, outlining Otis Redding's face and crayons. Yeah. So it was around. It's definitely an influence. I love it. I love it. That's, that's Mecca to me. I'm in the Southern thing. I feel the draw for the Southern thing. I miss sometimes the hardness of the edginess of um, the Northeast. Mm-hmm. But my personality is so much the Southern thing Yeah. that I'm where I'm supposed to be now. You know. So when you were uh, when you were at Berkeley, certainly you got like anyone that goes to college for music. You were exposed to bebop and jazz and that kind of a thing, right? I was, but I would I never, um, I never, it never took for me Same like here. a lot of people. I found what I like to do, which was just find a groove, you know, yeah. to sit on it. Yeah. And so I never really worked at the. I didn't really have the vocabulary, and still don't. Same here. To do that kind of stuff. My sh- very short time at the University of Miami, which is the straight-up jazz school, you know. And right. I had the same guy, guys as teachers that, that you know, taught Pat Metheny and people like that. And, yeah, right. Yeah. And those are legitimate, like, University of Miami, you yeah. you, you got to know your shit to go through. Yeah. And, to and, go uh, through there. I just, you know, I, I enjoyed the environment. But, you know, like, like you, I had something that took when I was a kid. And as much as I wanted to be versatile, I'm like, there are going to be people that love this. And if you love something, you're bound to be better at it. Yes. I'm never, ever going to really love this. Right. That's exactly how I felt. And so you don't want to put the work in. I didn't because I wanted to put the work in on stuff that I loved. You know? And that was the, there were a couple different faces to that. That That was the case definitely with, R&B kind of stuff, and back in those days, I mean, that was in the day, so it was like Cameo, you know, Larry Blackman, that kind of thing. But there was, I was also fascinated with the California guys, like Bob Glaub Mm -hmm. and Lee Sklar and Kenny Edwards and the guys that played with Linda Ronstadt and James Taylor and, and that whole clique. Yeah, I mean, as a bass player, I mean, I think most instruments, but as a bass player, it's, and again, looking at the United States being an entire continent, you know, that's one country that there are so many, because all the West Coast guys you just mentioned, they're funky in their own right. But Absolutely. It's, it's a slicker funk. It is. And, and it's so interesting how geography really, really changed or shaped these players that we both grew up listening to yeah i would imagine it's a more mellow life yeah you know the weather's great yeah you're just you're happy back then no traffic (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah man you're just happy to be there and plus because it's maybe because it geographically it's just you know that with the western part of the country and a lot of those guys moved to LA because they were closer. Maybe they, maybe their families came from Oklahoma or Texas or wherever, and they had more of a country influence. Yeah. 
And so, you know, you, they had that flavor mixed in to their playing, too. So when did you come to Nashville? What year was that? I came to Nashville in 1988. And back then, I came the first week of 2000. So I was here 18 years. Because you've been here then a lot longer. Yeah. At, yeah, 30. Yes. Back then, I hear stories about Lower Broadway being like a beat-down gangster porn district. Totally. Like, totally. There were still maybe one porn house, one, one you know, X-rated film house. Yeah. And um, Broadway was rough. Broadway was rough. And Second Avenue, we used to have a regular gig on Second Avenue at a restaurant, at one of the nicer restaurants. But when we loaded out at night, you never let your friend load out by himself. You always go out on the street and load out. Because we hear gunshots. That's on 2nd Avenue. Mm-hmm. Right where B.B. King's is, you know, that was Maribel's restaurant. Yeah, you couldn't be any safer now, there. Right, right. It's, it's like Disneyland. Tourist commerce. I played one Broadway gig, and I don't know anything about the scene there now. I know there are good players down there, and I know there are guys that make a living. It's mm-hmm. a grind, mm-hmm. but they make a living. Mm-hmm. But I did one gig at a place called The Turf. And it was like, it was crazy hours from eight to one, all country classics, which I didn't really know, come to town knowing that stuff. And whatever was on the radio for country music then. And um, it was like eight to one, and the guy paid me 35 bucks. And I walked out of there and I said, I will never, you'll never see me again (laughs) in this in this place well that's powerful that you make up your mind about hey this is not why I came here you know not even you know yeah it just wasn't my you know I had other avenues of work too yeah I got hooked up early on with a with a beach music band which really is just an R&B an old R&B band Mm -hmm. because that was the music that I knew 60s 60s 70s R&B and there was a whole scene on the east coast that they called beach music because it all revolved around this, you know, people getting together for dancing and parties and stuff. And so once I found that band, I, I jumped on that gig and stayed there for a couple of years. And it kind of delayed my getting involved with Nashville for a couple of years. Yeah, because I'm, I'm curious about it because even since I moved here, I feel like when I moved here in 2000, it was still pretty much a country town. Yes. Business-wise. Country and contemporary Christian, which is all the tours I did for the first 10 years of living here. Yeah, right. And even the contemporary Christian thing was completely separate and kind of based in Franklin. Yeah, yeah. And it's all connected now. All the suburbs are kind of connected to Nashville now. But, but, but yeah, my question is, when you moved here in 88, it has to have been a straight, straight, straight country town. Yes. It was totally. It was totally. There, were very, there was a very small rock scene. And I, you didn't know those cats if, unless you hung out with them. Mm-hmm. They were kind of in East Nashville, which was Tennessee's version of wherever, South Bronx or wherever. I mean, Compton. Yeah, it was still really rough over there and not developed. And so the rock guys were over there. And, um, and there was still, there were remnants of the older Nashville R&B scene over there, too. Mm-hmm. There was a guy that I used to work for named Ted Jarrett who had hits in the 60s and was a local Nashville producer in the 60s. Maybe had a few one-hit kind of wonder artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And you would find little pockets over there where you go work in somebody's home studio. Um, but other than that, it was a straight-up country town. And there were different clubs around town that you would go sit in. And that's mm-hmm. if you wanted a gig, that's how you did it. Mm-hmm. So you're, were you still playing the beach band when your first few years in Nashville? Yeah, but I moved here with a gig. I moved here with a really good gig. Yeah. And, and it was a gig that I got when I was in Boston. And it was like a classic rock band called the Rascals, the Young mm-hmm. Rascals. Oh, yeah. And so they never had a bass player because the Felix Cavallari played B3 and he played pedals. He's still out there working. John Howard plays bass for him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That was my first gig. That was literally my first road gig ever. Wow. I played in Boston. I played in played wedding bands, and we played little gigs, you know, little rock bands around clubs and stuff. But So I moved to Nashville with a gig and a bus on a salary And I thought, oh yeah, oh that's and, easy. And a rock and roll gig at that. Yeah, and like, rock you know, and roll not gig. like some cheesy stuff you don't want to play. Right, it's, it was just bizarre. And then we'd go to gigs, and because because they had bass on their records, like we would go do gigs, and I was 21 years old, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody call you to the dressing room, and you walk in the dressing room, and you'd be like, hey, Chuck Rainey, see, this is Chuck Rainey. Because mm-hmm. Chuck Rainey played on records. So there were always cats hanging out like that on that gig. Mm-hmm. And it was a great way to come to town. And four months later, when that gig ended, and I was in Nashville, I realized quickly that I didn't know anybody. I didn't know the scene here. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what kind of town I had just moved to. Mm-hmm. Especially after gigging in the, in the Northeast, in New York a lot. I was gigging in New York a lot then. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, for a couple of years, I thought, what have I done? Yeah. You know, what have I done? I don't know how to get around yeah. with, with musically. Uh, I think the first, first time I sort of heard about you was from John Connolly. The guitar player. In Winona's band. In Winona's band. Yeah. And I had seen that band, I think, living in Sweden and living in uh, both Minneapolis and Florida, that where I lived before. I had seen your version of the Winona band on TV, I think. Oh, okay. And and uh, that was a legit incredible band, I think, that you guys had over, over there. It was a great band. And the drummer in that band was Steve Potts. From Memphis. From Memphis and um, cousin to Al Jackson, mm-hmm. and you know they passed the torch down to him. And you and you took over for Willie Weeks. Yes. So in 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 a lot of senses, that gig was pretty custom made for you, wasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Think. And I was a Willie Weeks disciple. Yeah. You know, for a long time before that. Yeah. So that's probably a big reason why I wound up on that gig because. Willie, even in my audition, when I got introduced to Winona, the first thing I said, hi, how you doing? She said, hi, Willie Weeks is the only bass player I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And I just went, okay, great. Well, I, great, I love Willie Weeks too, so we're in the same place. There you go. But, you know, it made a lot of sense. In hindsight, it made a lot of sense, and probably my feel was really similar. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I feel to this day that, that she... I mean, not that she didn't have an incredible career, but I had this talk with John Conley, out of all people, just mentioned his name, but 
looking at American music, the people that became legends, larger than life, didn't feel like they ever fit into a genre. You look I at, agree. You, you look at Elvis making rock records and gospel records and country records. Yeah, man. You look at Ray Charles doing the same thing. I always felt like Wynonna, even though you really don't mention her in the same name as Elvis and Ray Charles, but she had that great thing to me where she was just an American artist. Absolutely. And everything that runs through the waters and in the blood of American popular music, <clears throat> I feel like she was... She, had the, she could do the country-like squeal things with her voice, and she could do the rock growl, and she could certainly sing with soul. Sure, and she found her voice, you know, she had to, she had to find her voice after leaving the Judds. Mm-hmm. And those Judds records are great country records, and they're not typical country records for the day. They're, they have a real individual sound. But when that ended, she went looking for her thing, and she didn't hesitate to have you know, black southern musicians in her band or whatever, just whatever she heard. Mm-hmm. And I think it really made a difference. Yeah. She was open, she's still open, very open musically. Yeah, now that was just something that I, before I even moved to Nashville, that was one of the bands that I had eyed up. I'm like, Yeah, that was a great band. Yeah, yeah, because I, I had eyed up some stuff where like, okay, if that's what they're doing there, then I have no problem not even looking at New York or L.A. Because I was kind of fresh out of college looking to move to a town where I could get hired on right. real gigs. Right. Since then, you do more sessions and touring, would you say? Well, I have. It has started, this past year has been a little bit different. The session thing now is not like it used to. You know that. Yeah, That's, yeah. Everybody kind of does whatever. But, yeah. but what's, what started with me... What started happening with me right on the Winona gig, actually, was I wound up on these gigs that would work 40 or 50 days a year. Winona, every year, pretty consistently every year, would work June through September. A.K.A. National Touring Season. Right, National Touring Season. And she would, like every other, like most every other artist, we weren't on salary. Mm Mm-hmm. And she would shut down in the fall, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't have any idea. There would be no word about when we're going to kick back up, what's going to happen, what are the plans for next year. It was just like, this is our last gig is in Seattle. Thank you, guys. That was a great tour. See you later. She's out. Mm-hmm. And the first couple times she did that, I was in her band probably six or seven years and the first couple times she did that, it's December, like everybody winds up, you know, in December. It's December, and I'm going, oh, shit, what am I going to do? Where am I going to gig? I need to keep gigging. I can't, you know, I didn't make enough money to sit around until she gigs again. So after that happened a couple times, I kind of learned my lesson and started going out and getting involved. And... As the years went on and she would take those breaks, I just kept working and just threw my net out as wide as I could get. Mm -hmm. And then the day came when I was doing almost as much stuff as she was doing. And then she, you know, the day came she wanted to go back out. And I went, well, you know, I don't really have to go back out. So I did sessions, more sessions than not, for a good good while. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would have in-between gigs, like after Winona, I did, I was kind of officially in Dolly Parton's band, Mm -hmm. but Dolly only worked, she did five weeks in the spring, 
in Europe. She didn't work again until Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade. Mm -hmm. So I always had a little bit of a pad mm -hmm. somewhere. So and that happened with a couple other gigs. It seems like in Nashville, and certainly uh, artists that aren't 25 anymore, they settle this really successful Nash Nashville acts. Today, that would be, you know, Carry On with Keith Urban. Yeah. They settle into this 40 shows a year type of thing. Right. Uh, where, you know, I'm not saying they don't love touring, but I've always made the, the comparison to if you're with a rock act that is possibly nearing 70 years old, and is financially independent and rich for many series of grandkids to come. Yes. I'm talking Elton John and Springsteen, Billy right. Joe, people like that. Right. They'll take three, four years off, but when they go, they'll go like a 20-year-old again for like a year. So it's always been an interesting observation to me that when you play with a Nashville act, if you're not on a good salary, you might not want to wish for them to become very, very successful because... They'll bump you up a little bit in pay, but they'll do 40 shows. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. That's absolutely the case. And it was even, I did it once, once, maybe twice, but it was even a, a red flag for me to hear the word salary after a while mm -hmm. because the salary gigs are great if you're on point all the time and you're ambitious mm -hmm. and, you, you, and you really take advantage of having whatever time you have. Mm -hmm. But the salary thing to me after a while was, oh, I don't, that just means I have to give more commitment. The bad part of the salary gigs, because I've had a few of them, and, and it's just sometimes nothing happens for two or three months, and there's, there's money coming in. And other musicians that play bars every night are like, oh, man, you're lucky. And I'm like, I know I'm lucky, but, well, can you come do this fun show with me for some small amount of dollars with all my favorite musicians on it down at the local bar on Thursday night? Right. I'm like... 90% I can. But, <laughs> but if somebody calls. I had one time with Leanne Rimes when I was her MD. And we were on tour. We were two, two months out. But I was like the single guy in the band. I lived close. Right. So her and her husband called me one night. And I was three hours from a club gig in town that I've been looking forward to forever. And, uh, and they're like, hey, can you come over? Uh, we want to change the set list for next week. Like, I'm thinking to myself, oh fuck. my god, you gotta miss your gig. I'm thinking, fuck, we haven't changed the set list in one year, right? To We're like a, a machine out there, yeah. and she wants to drink wine and fuck with a set list, which will probably mean after three hours, oh, that was fun, let's keep it the way it is, <laughs> right? right? And so, obviously, it was an in town gig, so there was the option of calling other amazing national bass players that yeah. are world class and are just hanging out at home watching TV, We're like, oh, we'll go down there in three hours, right, nothing right. to do. But you look like an ass to your friends more than anything. But that salary gig at the sure. extreme, that's what that means. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and we know, and, you know, the guys, we've got friends on the, on Garth Brooks' gig. Mm -hmm. And those guys are salary guys. And they're really the only guys that I've seen have to, that where something will really come up heavy, like, we got to leave town. They may get a day's notice sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, they know most of their schedule, but... That would freak me out. It, I always felt more secure, and I still feel more secure, doing as many different things yeah. as possible. Like even now, I'm, I'm bouncing. I'm committed to things, but I'm bouncing a couple different live things that aren't involved. Yeah, and I'll ask you about those later, your yeah. current live things. But, but yeah, I have to say, 
that it took me way too long and I was way too hard-headed and, and, and even dumb to put all my eggs in one basket in a, for a long time in my side yeah. man career here. It was just, I don't, I don't want to say it's like you marry a woman, but I, I always, I was married to the idea of I want to be on this gig and I want to be all in it, obviously. I did that, yeah, I yeah. learned that lesson. But yeah, you did. It took me too long to learn it, but I have learned it. So, so we were talking about you diversifying and doing more sessions in the off, uh, off mm -hmm. season. For people that aren't too hip to you or your playing, would you mind recommending some stuff that you've been on throughout the years that people can buy or download that you think, hey, this is a good representation of what I do? Yes, you know, I play on, there's an artist, do you know Seth Walker? Mm -hmm. I play on Seth Walker's records, mm -hmm. and I've played on, we just finished maybe his fifth or sixth record, mm -hmm. and I'm super proud of those, mm -hmm. of those records, and it's usually, usually the band is me, Seth, and John O'Ricks, who plays in the Wood Brothers. Mm -hmm. The early, first couple records, maybe Derek Phillips played drums. Mm hmm And the last two, the last two or three records, it has been split. Like I played electric on half, mm -hmm. and Chris Wood played uh, acoustic bass mm -hmm. on half. So I would recommend those definitely. Um, I'm trying to think. There are things coming out. You know, I've done different records, one-offs. There were record, there were country records in the '90s I played, and I played on a bunch of Dolly Parton records. Mm -hmm. This new John Oates record that we did last year that we've been touring is a really fun, old um, acoustic blues record of the m music of Mississippi John Hurt. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Because I saw a TV special that you guys had that was looping late night on one of those live music television With shows. With Oates? Yeah. And, and and one of my dearest friends on the planet, and the guy who actually encouraged me to start this podcast, I got to give him a shout out, Shane Terrio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Shane's great. Yeah, he, he has a podcast that I'm sure everyone already knows, because it's a famous called Riff Raff, and it's a fantastic podcast. Yeah, Shane is killing. And that was a really good record. I've yeah. done three or four records with Oates. Yeah. And Shane was on, you're talking about the, the it was on Palladium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, yeah, so check that out, friends that are listening. Uh, that really was funky. It was like super on the down low funky with his whispery voice. And right. Like, Spooky. Yeah, play, play to the singer, right? And he's got a really, not timid, but uh, he's got a very soft voice. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just, it's got a lot of character. You can't bulldoze over it, for and, sure. Yeah. So out of those Dolly records, are there any specific songs you remember? Uh, yes. There's a... One of the coolest experience I've ever had experiences, and playing country music, which I've come to really love, and I'm sure you have too. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I can say I didn't love it when I moved here. I didn't even know it really. I did a record with her probably about 10 years ago, and the band, I was playing upright, which I don't do a lot of, mm -hmm. and it was a, uh, we recut an old song that she wrote called Put It Off Until Tomorrow. And it was with Pig, Hargus Pig Robbins, mm -hmm. who was the 50s and 60s Nashville AA session piano player, played on all those records. Mm -hmm. He was playing piano, and Lloyd Green was playing steel. And oh. I think Lloyd Green may have been playing steel on the original. But to play that old school country song 
to track that and to hear her voice in the headphones was transcendent, man. I mean, it was, I, and I knew when it was going down, when I, I was appreciating it as it was going down. So mm-hmm. I'm really proud that that, that that happened. Yeah. Because it was with those guys, you know, it was uh, with the original guys. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. I'm going ch- to check that out. Yeah, it's really good. And Dolly certainly, speaking of American legends who transcend genre, even though she's a, a country singer with that voice she has, she, her songs, which Whitney Houston proved, <laughs> her songs are just amazing songs. I don't know, she, she to me is almost like an older blonde version of Prince, you know what I'm saying? Music is just her She's that prolific. Being. Yeah. She's Music that prolific. Music is her entire sure. being. And she is definitely gifted beyond, yeah. I think. She's, people... a, she's the, the hardest working artist I think I've ever been around. And the cool thing about working for her, I got to know her. I didn't know her well when we were touring. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, I imagine that it's like working for Elvis. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just rings of people around her. And she's so busy with media and press and whatever other commitments she has. You kind of play the intro of the song and watch her walk out, and she turns around and waves at everybody. And mm-hmm. you know, you you have more contact with her in rehearsal, but um, but she's by far the most professional, straight up. I do my job, you do your job. I'm paying you this, and here's what I expect of you. And you don't ever have to worry about me. You don't have to worry about if I'm going to show up on time. If she calls rehearsal for ten o'clock. She's there at 9.30 every single time. And if you're not there at 9.30, she notices. Mm-hmm. You know, she might not come down on you as long as you're there in time, but she knows what's up. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's writing. Man, I bet she sleeps three hours a night. She's writing songs all the time. And when I worked with her, um, she eventually decided to stop gigging for a while because it was taking away from her doing other things. And then she went up, who knows, doing another movie or mm-hmm. or whatever. But that was, that was a good gig. Yeah. It wasn't, you know what, though? Um, I stopped doing it after a couple of years because I went into it with, it wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. And I, the musicians are awesome. She was awesome. I really don't have any bad things to say about it. But I went in with this really romanticized, vision of what it was going to be mm-hmm. that it's Dolly Parton iconic American songwriter and she would sit on a stool and play acoustic guitar and sing I will always love you or love is like a butterfly or whatever and bring you to tears and it would just be that all the time mm-hmm. and and it had those moments which I always really appreciated but she also learned show business in Nashville in the 60s from Porter Wagner when it was still very showy. Mm -hmm. You know, it was about entertainment and it was about wholesome, whatever, middle America. Hey, wear your nudie suits and look flashy and Mm -hmm. tell this joke and then do the song. And and her show was a show and that's why people like her. Mm -hmm. But that's not my bag, Mm -hmm. really. Yeah. And um, so after I did it for a couple years, I thought, well, it wasn't, she really wasn't working that much anyway, and she was getting ready to take a lot of time off. So it timed out nicely that I could go to something else because I realized, okay, it's not going to be. I'd been a little bit spoiled being in bands that were just full of gunslingers where the whole identity of the band was based on, the, we're, we're badass musicians. Mm-hmm. 
and here's what you get. And so we don't care who's playing before us or after us. This is what you came to see. Mm-hmm. And in Dolly's band, it was a little more, you know, the, the musicians were just as badass, but it was a little more like, hey, this is Dolly Parton show, and mm-hmm. we're going to, boom, boom, we got the, we're gonna, you're going to move to this part of the stage, and mm-hmm. we're going to play this song, and people are going to love it, and I'm going to tell a couple jokes and then go over here. Mm-hmm. So it was show business, yeah. man. current gigs that you're balancing your sessions with now and the John Oates thing is, is still floating around when he's got time I know he's out right now yeah he's out right now with Holland Oates but mm-hmm. the, the Oates thing I've had a long recording relationship with Oates mm-hmm. he started coming to town um, 10 or 11 years ago I think we were we talked about this recently I originally was gonna he came to town he didn't live here at the time and I was originally supposed to play on his record, wound up not being able to do it. Um, but T-Bone, T-Bone Walk, mm-hmm. who's a hero of mine, has been for a long time, who also played on Curtis Blow, These Are The Breaks. All right. That I had when I was a kid. I had the single. Anyway, T-Bone came to play on half the record and didn't come to town with a bass. So I wound up meeting Oates anyway and taking T-Bone a P-Bass to play. Mm-hmm. And the next time he came around to do a record, I was still hanging around those people and got still got the call to do the, the next record. So I've done probably four or five records with him. And um, I've only recently have started playing with him live. Mm-hmm. And that was to tour this past record that we did last year called Arkansas. Wallflowers, how long has that been going on? Yes, Wallflowers has been going on for about five years. And that's a super cool gig. And it's so refreshing to have a gig that's not a quote-unquote Nashville gig. Mm -hmm. Even though, at this point, all the other players are Nashville guys, Mm -hmm. which uh, which I love because it's just badass. It just means there's that much. It just shows people there's that much more stuff going on in Nashville. There's Mm -hmm. that much more resources. But I got brought in on the Wallflowers thing by the guitar player Stuart Mathis. Mm Mm-hmm who I had done a record for. And um, that was another gig that didn't work very much. The first year I played with them, we did maybe 15 gigs. And typically, that's what they do, 10 to 20 gigs a year. Mm-hmm. And so um, I replaced the last original guy, Greg Ritzling, I think is his last name. He's a great bass player. Did he play on the, on the, on the big album? Yeah, he's been in the band since the beginning. The bass playing on the album that has one headlight on it, the bass playing on all those songs is really tasty with a fantastic tone. And, right, and yeah. very, um, I don't, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know him personally, so I don't know how thought out those lines were, mm-hmm. but man, he's playing the song for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm really impressed listening to all the Wallflowers records mm-hmm. at his sense of when to play and when not to play and when to like, Mm-hmm. lead into a chorus, how he might transition from a verse to a chorus. It's really good, man. I don't know how long they took to make records because I, I really like how all those Wallflowers records are put together. And the the band now, 
has taken kind of obviously has its own identity as a band. So we don't play those songs exactly like those records. Mm-hmm. Um, but the songs sure hold up. You know, I love doing that gig. I try to not spend an hour gear nerding because we all know the tones in the hands. But on that gig, do you bring anything specific because some of the venues are larger or, or do you play that, what you would play on a session? Or? Man, that gig is mostly backline. Mm-hmm. Um, when we went on the road, I took, uh, I had, when we went on the road, I had an Aguilar rig mm-hmm. um, with two twelves, which most of the time was enough. But whenever we have backline, it's, I always have SVT stuff. And I would probably play SVT stuff more if it was, if I was able to do it, as long as I didn't have to carry it. <laughs> Flats versus round wounds on tour for you. I'm sure at sessions you have a few bases set up with flats, right? Yes. Yeah. And the more, I didn't grow up on flats, and so it, it has taken me a long time to get comfortable on mm-hmm. flats. Uh, I love how flats sound, mm-hmm. and I find the older I get, the more I love flats, and the more I'm putting flats on more stuff. If I'm not careful, I'll have flats on just about everything. Mm-hmm. But I'm almost always playing, on, especially on Wallflowers gigs, I'm always playing P bass with round wounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I've taken flats a couple. I've taken a couple P basses with flats, and it just gets a little dark. Mm-hmm. The guitars are crunching so hard, man. I can't yeah. compete. You're not uh, very old. I mean, your your career is cooking here in town. But I always sort of ask, like, what's on the bucket list? What are you obviously are are doing a lot of fulfilling stuff. I mean, so I mean the John Oates thing, soulful, and and Wallflowers is soulful rock and roll, and if you could just be like a, a kid and have a wish list for, if you could just have any gig or plan any record, what's what's on the bucket list? Wow. I would love to do more, oh man, I would love to do more things like Faces kind of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I'm not old, relatively speaking, but I've been here for a long time. I've been here for 30 years. And so those gigs for me were always like, the Stones, mm-hmm. you know, man. When Daryl Jones, when Daryl Jones started playing with the Stones, we were like, "Oh wow, okay, maybe anything is possible," mm-hmm. you know. Or Prince's gig mm-hmm. was always a bucket list thing for me. Um, my my goal, uh, because I'm I'm ambitious in the respect that I pr- everybody has their ego, you know. I really it's important to me to be. To, to keep good company musically. Mm-hmm. And it's important to me to be respected by my peers. But I have never been the kind of stair-step, mm-hmm. ambitious, this job to this job to, to this pinnacle, top of the pyramid kind of gig. Mm-hmm. So as long as I'm keeping good company musically and the drummers are happening, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the truth, man. So I'm, I'm happy, man. I'm happy as long as I'm, as long as I'm, as long as musically everything's happening. And, you know, I have to work. I, I have to work a lot. I like to work a lot because it's what I love. But we kind of, I kind of had kids late. I had a family late. So mm-hmm. my kids are teenagers now. Mm-hmm. So, man, I got to work. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, speaking of your kids, how, how is, the, is there a musical interest or, or obsession? They both, I think my daughter is, she's one of us, for sure. Okay. Well, you can't get rid of that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and she's into it. I don't, I don't push it. You know, she plays cello. She originally started playing cello because she wanted to play a bass, because it was like a bass, because it looked like my upright. Mm-hmm. Um, both of my kids have uh, good musical ears. Mm-hmm. And even more importantly, they've been raised around musicians, so they have these beautiful, dark sense of humor. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they're both pretty good hangs, but she's she's the musician. He, my son, who's 15, he's not, it's not so much. All right. What, what's his bag? What's his deal? He's a history nerd. He's like straight up and down, you know. Yeah. He's as far away from a musician as you're going to get. Oh, man, you got to have one of those in the house. Uh, that's Listen, I think balance. it's awesome. Yeah. That's so, great with me. I think one thing, especially since I just relocated to, to Los Angeles, even though I'm back here working all the time, one thing that Nashville rightfully and that I've really noticed more than anything being after le- there, After leaving? After leaving. Uh-huh. One thing that Nashville has down is the speed which musicians here can get from nothing to something that is professional and in best case not generic and you don't find that as much quite honestly so far in LA musicians national musicians sometimes are just so good that they sort of can sound a little comfortable this is when worst case okay see that's my that's my question so here's so I find this is a general statement so right so people can't get butthurt because this is a sweeping generalization (laughs) Now, I'm not trying to be politically correct, because that, that's never my thing, but in L.A., even if I hear people that really can't play that well, I find a lot of them play with a sense of urgency that I really am attracted to. Like, this is life or death for me. It might not sound pretty, but this is what I'm fucking doing. There's a sense of urgency. Do, and do you find, is that, that does it have an artistic intent? Yes. Yes, in, in some cases. So that's what I like about L.A. Yes. That I sometimes missed here, even at a professional level. Sometimes. Right. Obviously, most of the time at a professional level here, <clears throat> I was like you. Like, well, you're surrounded by all these people you learn from every day. It's sure. Beautiful. On the pro side for Nashville is what I mentioned. Is <clears throat> somebody plays us a song. You know, it's happened in rehearsal a few times in L.A. And, you know, you listen once, and we have our Nashville number system. And it's not about having extraordinary amount of talents. It's about developing a skill where you can turn clay into a pot pretty yes. quick. Right. Without, hopefully, without making it too generic. Yeah. So uh, I want for our listeners that haven't been around the national, the national session scene or don't know how that works, but mm-hmm. have those ambitions. When you walk into a session, which in most cases you haven't heard the songs before, and you get a chart. What is your thought process? Trying to, trying to distill down. You mentioned something great about the bass player from The Wallflowers where you talked, I like the way he sometimes gets from the verse into the pre-chorus or from the pre-chorus into the chorus. Right. And to me, I call that playing bass like a producer, meaning you are, <clears throat> instead of just playing a bass line, you're trying to create energy for certain parts of the song. Absolutely. That has nothing to do with bass. And you're framing t- the song. Yeah. You're so, framing the song. And I'm still, <clears throat> I'm still after 
doing this for so many years, I'm still seeing new ways to do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm still kind of fascinated with guys that do that. And there are guys doing sessions who, who grab onto that concept very early. And it's really beneficial. The drawback is exactly what you're saying. The drawback is that you can fall into these patterns of very sterile, uh, non-musical kind of playing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the question is, when you're doing a demo, and when it's a factory kind of thing, which is, it's Nashville. That's what it was in the 60s. And to a certain extent, that's what it still is. It's changing now because it's growing. But I want to let, pardon my interruption, I just want to let the listeners know that a lot of time in a session, it's a three-hour block. Yes, it's and, a three-hour block, and you and we walk in, we'll hear the song, everybody is handed charts. More times than not, you're handed a chart mm-hmm. from maybe the leader of the session. So we're listening to the song once, and I'm always surprised at how even, even after one listen, most everybody in the room has a pretty good handle on what they're going to play the approach they're going to take um and then we may go out into the room and a lot of times it'll be first or second take Mm -hmm. but if you don't have those uh if you don't approach the song as a bass player if you don't approach the song with some space and with those considerations like how am i leading uh into a chorus or how am I leading into a bridge or how am I creating momentum, which sometimes can even happen 16 bars before you might get to a section. Mm -hmm. Um, Then it gets too busy, gets too busy and it just is not making the song what it could be. You know, it's holding the song back. The great thing about Nashville, as we know, is you get to play with a full band to do what you said. Everyone gets to the, right. But the, the, interesting thing for me maybe because i come from really arranged pop bass lines mm-hmm. a lot where the bass lines are hooked whether it's billy jean or living on a prayer or or a, most of the motown hits you, you can just sing the bass line like you can sing the chorus right which is a big sort of ego stroke for the bass player because you basically wrote the hook for the song and it's up there yeah but absolutely one thing that i found sometimes producers on small budgets that they'll play everything themselves and then they'll be like Oh, I, I try to comp my own bass part, but I'm not a bass player. Can you come in and play it? Yes. And then, I'm sure you get to do this a bunch, and I'm even though I don't get to be part of the initial creative process, I am very excited when I get to play a bass to a finished lead vocal. Yeah, yes. And, I love that. F- and, and it doesn't happen very often. No, but those few times, I'm always more excited than when I get... Because sometimes I find myself on a session and the singer, maybe the, the trash vocal isn't what we, sure. you know, and they add a bunch of harmony parts. And I found, oh, I added something where I thought something was needed, but it wasn't because things got added later. Right. And, and I love, as a fan of pop music, to go in and be able to craft the part when all the other things are in play so you know, you know. That's kind of a, a, a way I like to record. That's a luxury. It don't happen a lot, but that, I have almost more fun that way sometimes. Yeah, and that's a very that's a valuable skill. That's a skill that I had to learn was to create, to think in parts mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. because I was always so keyed into just locking into the feel of it and locking on a groove. Mm-hmm. I had to think more about when I started playing on more records. I had to think more about specific parts and going. And then when you study other people's 
parts you learned that. But I admire you for that because that is something you do really well. Oh, thanks, man. I just, you know, I, I think, again, I, I grew up in, um, I was born 73. So, you know, I was 10 years old, 1983. And, and I feel like around 1981, up through the 80s, I had some bass teachers. I'm going to say when I went to school in America, they said that 80s was sort of a dark decade for electric bass because everyone was exploring the synths. But right. my bass lines that I learned to play <clears throat> when I was just trying to figure out the very <clears throat> basics as a beginner, well, a lot of them were key bass lines. So I count that as a blessing because a lot of the keyboard players, they either came up with a part that didn't fit in my box right. or they came up with a part that was more designed to drive the song than being interesting as a bass part. Yes. So uh, I went through many, many years of listening to bass players who played flashy and, and many, many years of, of, of overplaying, I'm sure. But those initial years of copying things like Billie Jean, it's like, well, you know, that, that serves a purpose to know if a written part, basically. Right. And then you have the opposite, which Jamerson surely had, there's a few Motown parts that are so hooky, but then there are stream of consciousness parts sure. that ends up becoming the biggest ones. What's going on, for example? Absolutely. Or yeah. Mutiny, you know the song Mutiny? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That's a perfect example of that. Yeah. <clears throat> so I just, I thought it was interesting for, for the listeners to tie it back into my question there with Nashville Sessions that, that we don't get the luxury to, to create a part that often it's more about vibe because there isn't totally the time there is not the luxury of time right and the, the and if you can the quicker that you can lay down a solid bass part and support the song and do your job and maybe you know that's just the more you the more the less you can inject yourself in a in a showy kind of way mm -hmm. i mean obviously Obviously, your voice is is going to add to the song, you know, if you're playing all the right shit. But yeah. but um, they need that time for guitar players to create the hook or to do the overdubs mm -hmm. or to layer their delayed keyboard sounds or whatever, you know. Yeah. Well, the bass, bass players and drummers got it hard, man, I think, because we've got to be on top of our shit immediately. Mm -hmm. And I'll say that. At, at the same time, I would encourage anybody... Who's, who's doing sessions or starting to do sessions to temper the pressure that you feel to get it right the first time and to maybe not fix a mistake or not fix something that bothers you within reason. Um, I'm still, man, I played on this record. I played on this record um, a couple weeks ago. That was really cool R&B, kind of hip hop ish thing, and it went into this. Uh, the end vamp of the song went into this really experimental kind of almost Michelle and Diego Cello feeling. Oh wow! Kind of thing. It was really awesome. This is a session with Marcus Finney was playing drums. That's a good day work for you. It was awesome. <laughs> it was right where I needed to be. It's where I should be more. I yeah, think yeah. for me. Yeah. But there was one phrase. Uh, in the trajectory of this out, outro that just didn't fit and there was a bunch of ugly fret noise. I went back and fixed that, but we just punched that bar and a half. Mm -hmm. And then every time I would hear playback, it sounded out of context and it sounded, the attack wasn't identical because we just 
flew that into the mm-hmm. the original tracking part, and I didn't fix it. And they just sent the producer just sent a a voice memo to all of us going, "Hey, check out this cool thing. Thanks again for your great job you did on your record, whatever." But every time I listen to that playback, this bar and a half clip that we inserted just bugs the shit out of me to the point where now I'm going to call them and go, hey, when you get to mixing this, let me sit with you because I don't think they're paying attention to it. So all that to say, if something goes down when you're tracking a song and it bothers you, at least ask to fix it. If everybody in the room... If everybody in the room says, oh, man, that's awesome, then you probably need to trust their judgment because you can get hung up easily on, on trying to make sure you're happy with your whole part to the detriment of the part. And I think that's the most valuable advice, and that's another lesson I learned too slowly is, is you figured I do bass all night long. Every girlfriend I've ever had says I play bass in my sleep every night. <laughs> right. So... I live this life of just bass, 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 right? And so we figured when we play a simple three-chord song in a country or, or rock and roll or, or R&B session, everyone has great taste, and we, we recognize that, but they go, nobody eats, lives, and breathes bass like me. So the little shit, if right. I don't look out for them, who will? And we think that, and that becomes a little trap, right? Like yes, you were just absolutely. saying. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes if, if I do, uh, especially if I do a track where the bass is a little featured <clears throat> and it's busy, Every little thing I like, but there's one or two things I absolutely don't like. Like you said, an ugly fret noise or maybe a note choice that isn't at all my best playing. If it happened in the moment, chances are, and nobody complained, chances are you should live with it. Right. Because... Yes, totally. Agreed. The, yeah. Agreed. And, and more times than not, any time that I've asked to edit or to change a bass part or to maybe edit a bass part, it's just been to mute things. Yeah. It's just, and it's just been because there might have been a little too much space going on and I wasn't comfortable enough with myself in the moment to let it sit and yeah. not play anything. And so I might have had a little grace note in yeah. there. And so I might go back and go, hey, man, can you just mute right there? And then all of a sudden the whole part opens up and it sounds great. That happens more times to me than I would like to admit. But And it shows you, again, how, much impo- how important leaving space is. Yeah. That is the the badass bass player's fattest tool. And you know, all, yes. a lot of my favorite drummers, instead of playing a fill all the way up to the downbeat, like you look like great R&B drummers, they'll do a fill, leave a hole, and hit one. And yeah. then the one just feels so good, you feel almost, oh, I, need, right, I, I feel dirty. Right. <laughs> and why is it so hard sometimes to be comfortable with that? Yeah. You know, I read, I read a quote one time from Pino Palladino, and he said, you have to have the confidence to not play. Mm-hmm. And even as I am saying it right now, there are still moments when I don't. There are still moments when when I'm in the moment and I'm too worried, I'm too caught up in the minutia of what's going on and how, do I, how am I going to make this song work? And just in the nervousness of that, that is the wrong kind of energy to have mm-hmm. when you're playing music. I'll fill that space. Mm-hmm. You know, and you just got to not do that i have a great story i got to play on the new it's not out i don't know when it's going to be out but the new what's going to be the new garth brooks record Mm -hmm. and i spent four days in the studio with him and he was super cool super laid back 
and all <clears throat> excuse me, all the guys that played on his records for like the last thirty years. The G Men, the older Yeah, right. Like they call them the G Men. Yeah. Right. Because Mike Chapman, a great bass player, Muscle Shoals, cat who played on all the stuff, had passed away a couple of years ago. And so they he doesn't record that much, but he's gone through a couple different guys. So anyway, fast forward, I'm in the studio with them. He doesn't ever cut with a click. Which, you know, for us, I mean the guys more times than not, the guys we're playing with around here, they are just badass on the grid. Bury that thing. They're bar- Yeah, man. You don't even hear the click. It's yeah. so dead on. Yeah. Which sometimes great, sometimes maybe not so great. But we're so, we get. I've been so used to playing like that, and so used to playing with precise drummers like that, that I got um, that I developed these habits of playing grace notes and phrases and your little tricks, you know, that you do because everything's on the grid when we go into play and you don't have to worry about, you know, it's not even consideration. You just, you learn to put it in there and make a groove, right? And it could still be on the click or whatever. So anyway, his drummer, this great Muscle Shoals drummer named Milton Sledge, legendary drummer. But his groove breathes, mm-hmm. you know, which is really one of the great things about it. And it's probably why, one of the reasons why those Garth Brooks records feel so good. Mm-hmm. But we sat down to do this, and it was like, it took me 45 minutes to find my place with this new band and with this new drummer. And there was no click reining us in, man. It was all, and and Garth Brooks... His vibe on a session is it's very much about feel. Mm-hmm. If the take feels right, we may play five or six times. Mm-hmm. And if the take feels right, he's like, yeah, that's it. Okay, cool. We're done. And, uh, and I may wanted to, there was one time when I wanted to fix something, and he just started laughing. Everybody in the room just started laughing. He said, well, you, yeah, you can fix whatever you want. What you heard is probably going to be the record because that's... God, that That's a very insults. polite fuck you, really. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> very polite. He's a very polite guy. Yeah, yeah. But um, so anyway, the point is, is that within within forty five minutes, probably or however long it took, on the first day, when I'm with this new bunch of guys, and it's in the back of my mind, you know, you make a good impression here. You got to do your job and make this whole thing work. That I had to start dumping all this stuff out of my playing immediately just to get out of the way. I couldn't play the, my, I couldn't go into my routine of all these little habits and idiosyncrasies and all the little grace notes and everything. I had to start shaving that off my playing to get down to fundamental bass playing, to let this thing go wherever it was going to go. And to let Milton, the drummer be yes. Milton, right? Yeah. To let him breathe records. and not to push him around because it's not about that. It's about, it's a marriage. Yeah. You know, it's making music. And um, and so, it worked. It wound up being great after the fact, an hour later, when we, when we were listening back to the track and we were sitting around maybe get some lunch or whatever, and I listened to the track and all of a sudden there was this realization like, 
sounds like a Bob Seger record when we were kids. Mm -hmm. You know, this is why that music sounded so good, because everything is so fundamental, and it didn't need to be so perfect. But I had to find that place almost immediately, and I had to start changing my playing and really think about just play straight-up bass, just play quarter notes, just play... Give everybody some space and don't lock everybody into the deal. That's incredible advice that you it have. It was a that valuable experience. lesson, man. We have a little text message group in, in here in town. Me and Amos from Taylor Street Band, who's been on the podcast, and a few other guys that have really good gigs. There's about five of us. Yeah. We text almost every day. And there'll be anything from Star Wars discussions to <laughs> right. how do you like this bass? How do I like this preamp? And that way we don't have to go on the internet and ask four million bass players that think they have an opinion because we yeah. have each other. And we, we all pretty much want to be Steve Mackey most days. So for people, <laughs> we've, we agreed, we've agreed on this, right? <laughs> my point is, if your grace notes always feel amazing. So when you say, I have to take out my grace notes for a Garth Brooks record to feel good, that's some shit. For one of my articles three years ago in Premier Guitar, I talked to my favorite three drummers in town about what they hate most about bass players. And it's playing grace notes? <laughs> and Miles McPherson, yeah. if you're familiar with Miles. Yes, I know Miles well. He didn't write this, but you know, if you know Miles, you know there's more F-bombs than normal words right. sometimes. And he, he basically said, I just fucking hate when there's a 16th note grace note before every bass note. Why doesn't he, who needs it? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know? we'll take Miles with a grain of salt. Yeah, I hear that though. I yeah. hear, I yeah. hear that. I understand where he's yeah. coming from. Yeah, because I think we we all do take that. out some of his fucking grace notes, Miles. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> he comes from like speed metal. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of grace notes. I'm kidding. But uh, so again, your grace notes on any live gig I would go to would be the thing that I think makes it funky. Me as a listener, but. Again, the sound of the old uh, Bob Seger or the sound of newer Garth Brooks, which you know people probably love because it connects them to country and classic rock. Yeah. So I just wanted to, to make a point to everybody with that little story how important that is that you went through that experience for all yes. of us to learn from. Yeah, and it's and it's um, uh, and to put myself to put myself in that headspace because I was thinking quick. Uh, just to make sure, you know, just because you want everything to go smooth as possible yeah. when you're in a new situation like that. Yeah. Um, and 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 I had this realization like that's what's so great about these legends that guys that were older than us that we learned from back in the day, like Bob Glauben, mm -hmm. Lee Sklar, and those guys, it's, those Jackson Brown records. Um, the Muscle Shoals, Swampers records, David Hood. That's what's so great about some of those bass lines is, man, there's no fluff. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's straight up fundamental bass. And it's also why, it's also why Duck Dunn is probably the top of the mm -hmm. hill. I mean, Willie Weeks is my guy always, forever. My number one guy. Mm -hmm. But when when somebody when a young person comes to me and says I want to learn how to play bass, the first place I send them is to anything that Duck Dunn played bass on. Yeah, and that's how I learned how to play country music. That's how I learned how to play R and B, everything because you can do it. It's so simple in execution that you can pick up a bass and you can learn a Duck Dunn bass line. 
He's the antithesis almost of, of Jamerson at the same time. Yes, absolutely. Uptown, downtown, north, yeah. south. Yeah. Even though Jamerson's from South Carolina. Yeah. But, but, um. But slick and intricate versus yes, simple and harmonically insanely aggressive. Right. Watching that man's right hand, you're just glad you're not. He just not mad at you. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I was when I see Will Lee play. Sometimes I go, that guy. I know he's a McCartney guy, but Will Lee, you can just his right hand and yeah, the way man. he just punishes a bass, even if it's a happy little ditty he's playing. I'm like, yeah, dude, you're, you're, yeah, man. you're a he's duck committed. Dung guy. That's a you're rock. a duck dung guy because duck. Duck plays like an he plays his leg like an upright. And I always, I've had to tame myself on on certain session. I go, oops, I'm playing sharp, so I'm playing too hard, or oops, it's too much right. fret, fret noise. I've done that too. So, but I am a duck done guy, and and I love that amount of. No man, you don't need that active preamp. Spank the wood hard enough, and it'll talk to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's me too. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I can, something I think because I don't do it, I I romanticize. Every now and then I go through this phase where like, oh, I gotta have a good, foo foo, you know, active. <laughs> I want to sound like this guy, you know. Yeah. I want to sound like, but I can't get a hold of it. It's just not my, it's not my thing. I found that a lot of the guys who I swoon over, who have more of an, a modern tone and who makes magic out of it, they are lighter touch guys. Yes. Yeah. And and um. And I will try to I will try to play with a lighter touch mm-hmm. every now and then, and my instinct is to always play with a more aggressive touch. Mm-hmm. But I realize that, and I realize I probably I need to have control over it, playing both. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded of the story about Ray Brown when Ray. I heard the story like Ray Brown's sound was so huge and so aggressive that. Guys, because you know, obviously they didn't have any other. If you weren't seeing him live, you you weren't watching him play. You didn't know how he was doing any of that. Mm-hmm. And so guys were playing with super high action and playing super hard. And he noticed that about somebody that was trying to cop what he was doing, mm-hmm. and just said, "No, man, I'm not playing hard at all." That was all. It was all in his fingers. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can get good sounds with a lighter touch. You can definitely choke your instruments. I've done it, and and my live my live touch does not work on sessions. That's yeah. Know. The guy who plays bass for Bon Jovi and rightfully got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, a few Hugh months McDonald. ago, Hugh McDonald. Yeah, he's great. If you like Motown bounds, but you like McCartney melody, and you want both, he's sixty five this year, I think. He doesn't look a year day over fifty, right. but so he's old enough to have come from the source on that stuff, but. Hugh has the lightest touch out of any bass player I know. Really? Because I would never guess that. He barely breathes on the string. Wow. So one of my best buddies here in town, like a, a melodic rocker guy, like Journey-type singer, yeah. high, high, beautiful rock singer. We make melodic 80s-style rock together. Uh-huh. Mitch Malloy is his name. So Huey played on his records in RCA back in the day. So we, I produced a record for Mitch and played on most of the songs. We're like, oh, it'd be funny if Hugh would play on a few. So Hugh came through town on tour and had a few days off and came to the house. How cool. And I got to watch my hero like this. Because right I was also producing the song. Yeah. And he didn't have my bass with him because he was on tour with Bon Jovi. So he, was just, mm. he played my Sadowski. And I watched him play and I'm like, yeah, he plays the soft as I, th- I, th- I thought he plays and all that stuff. Yeah. And then Mitch, being an artist and a singer, the next morning he's like, 
I, I should have put two minor chords in that bridge. I'm going to have to rewrite it. Oh, we recorded it already. No, no, no. You, you can just, you know. So he'd, he'd reshift some things in the computer, but it doesn't sound as good. You get digital fragments, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. So, it, so it's like, okay, Victor, go into Hughes' track and wow, and replay the bridge. Yeah. Oh, well, it was my bass, and I know he, he rolled it all the way to the front pickup, so uh -huh. I got the same bass. I got the same setting. I'm playing through the same board with the same, you know, every co cable is the same. I didn't even unplug the bass. Yeah. And I physically, physically could not play a soft to match that track. Really? I physically couldn't make my finger go that soft. That's how wow, soft human thumb plays. So what did you want? Did you no, wind no. up just approximating and then lo yeah, just lowering yeah, the level? Yeah, yeah, no, I, because obviously your sense of time and your sense of groove is muscle memory too. Yes. And, you know, there's a very basic, the thing Hugh does best, the kind of bouncy, kind of tubby eighth note kind of thing, yeah. even on one single note, which is more sensitive <clears> in the track <throat> than anything, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I had to go in and just bounce eighth notes in the middle of a bridge where he'd played most of the chords. I love that, man. Two or three. And he's, you know, he's my hero and it's my bass he yeah. played. But, but it taught me a super valuable lesson because Hugh always has astounding tone on every record. And every time I asked him, he goes, oh, I just plugged straight in with a cable and sometimes they reamped it or whatever. I really don't I love that. know what That's they old do. school. Yeah. It's so, in his hand. It's all, it's his hand. Doug Dunn is an anomaly because uh, any other guy playing that hard would choke his instrument. He would choke all the tone out of it, but Doug doesn't. Yeah. So right. we'll let him do that. Right. The interview before you, it was Joe Chimay. Yeah. Right? So there's this track by Martina McBride from one of her earlier records in the mid-90s called Safe in the Arms of Love. It's I remember it. kind of Celtic sounding, lots of mandolin. Yeah. It's up -tempo. It's got a gnarly pick bass. Like, it's got a full-on, thin lizzy Sex Pistols bass Yeah, man, it's a, there's a grind on it. Big time. Yeah. And then on top of it is fretless leads. None of it is hard, but those two things are the two least country things ever. And right. this is not modern, modern country. This is mid-90s, so the chicks were doing had a pop feel to it, yeah. but there was still very country vocally and lyrically. And I just go, that's everything I like to do. It's a grindy rock track, and it's like a big, beautiful, sweeping, simple, fretless thing. Yes. These are the two my two favorite things to play. So I talked to him the other day. and, and That's great. He also said, I, and I was like, you were on all my favorite rec national records back in the day. I hate to talk here, but not really. Let's talk here. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> right. So... You don't even carry a compressor like most most you know of us have a little compressor. He's like, no, no, I don't carry my, I don't have a session rack. I carry a bass. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Willie's like that too, man. Yeah. Willie's yeah. like that too. And I remember Joe. I was playing in the late '90s. I played for a little while with Dina Carter, mm -hmm. and Joe played. Were you with Angelo? Kalua? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. I started. I started with Dina in like I played there maybe ninety seven ninety eight, mm -hmm. and uh, the the next record I can't remember the name of it. The next record after her big record, which was probably around ninety eight, Joshua May played on mm -hmm. it. Was Joshua May and Greg Morrow mm -hmm. playing drums? Well, that's as good as Nashville gets in my book. Yes, absolutely. Enough correctness, but still fat and ugly right. when needed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, still the real deal. Anyway, Joe Schmay is a monstrous, he's a monstrous guy. But Willie does the same thing. Willie, I've heard stories about Willie showing up 
you know, with a PBS and a cable. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I heard a story. You said I heard stories. I talked to somebody, Chris Rodriguez. Yeah. Talked to him yesterday, and he told the, st- the same story. He goes, uh, somebody was obsessing over his tone and, like, where's your rig and where's your gear? And he pointed to the bass. Right. That was his rig. That's it. It's amazing to me how many different tones. It's just, it's all in your hands. Yeah. It's all in your hands. And the sooner that you become comfortable with your sound, the sooner that you accept, because it's still, my playing gets on my nerves still. And I'll hear, I will hear parts, I'll hear tracks that I played on and where friends of mine or other musicians or maybe the producer or whatever says, thank you for doing this, that sounds so great. And I'm, I'm excited to listen to it because it was a great session. And then I hear it and I go, oh, it just sounds like me. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, I know but that there, feeling more than you. But there are wow. times, you know, there, there's, there are times when you just need to go, yeah, right, that's me. Mm-hmm. So, take it from what it's like listening to your own voice when you're talking on a playback. It never, you never. And I found the old, the older I get, the more it sounds like me for bad and yeah. for good. You have a very distinct, you character to your playing, which I, which I like. I oh, think I, the, yeah. all the players that I admire, they have voices, and that's really important. And sometimes they can be fine tuned to the point where there are there artists like Victor Wooten or whoever. Or they could just be more kind of hired guns like us. Mm-hmm. That it's really important to have a voice. You know, you may not want to be. You're not going to come in with your chorus pedal all flanged out. You know, every time and they go, oh, okay, that's your signature thing. But it's important to have a voice. It's important to find your voice and to become comfortable with it. When I go out and play top forty songs in a bar, I love it because. You have to be every bass sound ever. You really yes. have to have no, just kind yeah. of disappear into all these songs. Like when you're in a house band or something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, that's, that's the dream gig. I think the question I asked you, what's on your bucket list? I would love to be in the house band for American Idol or The Voice, one of those TV shows, yeah. where the contestants are singing everything from Old Etta James to, right. to you know, Kelly Clarkson. And, you know, that's, I love those situations. Yeah, that, that, I would like that just because I really am a whore. I love all music. I and love music. I love being under the gun like that. Yeah. You know, throw up a chart and go for a few years and to this day i still appreciate billy sheehan he took his stuff from guitar players which he'll tell you and so he has a vibrato that is very and and i've been told again both bad and good that my vibrato even not necessarily on lead lines but even a little bit on my bass playing is just it's in there from the two years where i did all billy and i can tell it comes yeah. from him yeah you and, can tell that it comes you know that it comes from him yeah but it totally sounds like you now. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I, would, I don't hesitate. I don't hesitate for a minute to steal anything. No. Because it's all knowledge. Yeah. And it's all out there. And sure, you can cop. I mean, if you're just going to rip somebody off, then it's going to be obvious you're ripping somebody off anyway. But, but um, it's just all stuff to put in your tool belt for mm. reference for me and it's not going to sound like what you're trying to rip off anyway because you're not well, going to play none of us same. are good enough to be exactly that, <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> we're not creating anything yeah no um i don't hesitate to do that at all man there were times there were times in my band when i would i told i met randy jackson one time 
He's one of my top three. Yes, before you go further awesome. on, I, I had, know he's not famous for his bass playing. He'll never be. He, what but a badass bass Nobody, player. nobody plays bass like Randy yeah, Jackson. He's so great. And I, t- I got to meet him. I we played on. I played on American Idol one time with Dolly, and he came into the dressing room, and I said, "Bro, I just got to tell you, there I have learned so much from your playing, and specifically, there was something I took, some kind of over the bar lick." Mm-hmm that I took from from a record, from a Todd Rundgren record that he played on. And that thing morphed, it kind of found its way into my playing, and it morphed however it morphed in that time period. And I wound up playing it on like a Judd's record or mm-hmm. something like that. But it's, you know, it's not going to, it didn't sound like Randy Jackson, it sounded like me. Well, Randy, I mean, I could talk about Randy Jackson forever. I am, I am obsessed with the man's playing. And he, he did a lot of my favorite playing on records that weren't commercially successful at all. He had a very tight relationship with Richard Marks. And mm-hmm. Richard went the total white, blue-eyed soul route after yeah. his big pop records. Uh, his experimental face, and those are my favorite records. And Richard told me once, yeah, you and two more people like those. Randy was given free reign. Right, it's like Randy and like Fender Rhodes and Bruce Gacy lives here on yeah. like some slick clean yeah. guitar. That's it. The rest is open. Randy has a thing where he basically explains. You know, he plays like he holds his fingers like a pick, so he'll okay. strike the nail like Bernard the, Edwards kind of. Yeah, so he'll strike the string with his nail, but instead of kind of like a Larry Graham, uh, Ethan Farmer kind of like right half thumbing thing it's legit like a rock guy would yes. strike the string down strikes with a pick only yeah. he's not holding the pick so the sound is his nail but for all intents and purposes on a record it sounds like a pick randy showed me how to play pick bass on soulful funk music yeah his use I of go- yeah because it's a different kind of ghost notes that doesn't exist in the fingerstyle right. world different feel on the ghost notes Speaking of yeah, he had a full handle on it. Yeah, you know that Divinals record. Oh, God. I love that Divinals record. The big hit on that Divinals record. I touch myself. It's like that's Paul McCartney if he was blacker. I'm gonna say it. Yeah, man. If Paul McCartney had more, I mean, nobody can diss Paul McCartney. But if Paul McCartney had like a deeper, slimier feel to those melodies, that's what. Sure. And it's just the simplest major scale walk down. Do, 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 do. That's it. But it's just, it's the simplest bass line. But Randy plays it in some kind of way where you can hear that he's half Caucasian classic rock and half funk. Sure, he's got his influences too. Yeah. and, And he has taken, you know, that may be McCartney. That may be some shit he stole from McCartney and it just came out. In his voice. It came out like Larry Graham playing McCartney. Yeah. I don't know. I say take whatever you can take, man. As long as you're conscious of that it's adding to to your sound and to your voice. You know, that's how we learn. That's how we learn. We learn from older musicians. And that's why it's important for older musicians to hang around younger musicians. You know, I love that, man. I love hanging around younger guys. That's what's, that's what I'm learning like that. Thanks, Steve, for uh, sharing your inside dirt on your long and fun career in Nashville, man. And, man, thank and, you so much, Victor. I hope you.
guys had as good of a time listening to Steve as I did talking to him in this podcast. I have a few fantastic podcasts coming up that I'm currently editing. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, please uh, let your friends know, all musician friends. Please give us a review on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. I'm extremely appreciative that you guys are keeping this bass nerd thing alive. And I look forward to seeing you guys right back here soon. So keep it funky, keep it low, and we'll see you right back here on the Lowdown Society Podcast.